It's New Zealand's most infamous cold case, the murders of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe in 1970 in their Pukekawa farmhouse. Arthur Allen Thomas was twice convicted and after a long campaign which focused on police mishandling and corruption, he was pardoned in 1979 and awarded nearly $1 million compensation, quite a lot at that time. The only free pardon ever granted to a living prisoner in New Zealand history. In 1980, a Royal Commission concluded that police had committed, quote, an unspeakable outrage, unquote, in planting the cartridge case which had been key to the original conviction. Kirsty Johnston is an investigative journalist now with RNZ. James Hollings is Associate Professor of Journalism at Massey University in Wellington. And together, they've written a book, The Crew Murders. They say they realised that this is much more than just another cold case, or even just another account of police mistakes. James Hollings explained what prompted the book. Well, I always used to teach this story because a big part of the story is the work of Pat Booth, the deputy editor of the Auckland Star, whose investigative work through the 1970s helped free Arthur Thomas in conjunction with Jim Sprott and others, and the Thomas family, of course. Um, So I used to teach this sort of story to my students as a example of investigative journalism and one thing that's often talked about is the court of last resort so it was an example of that in about 2018 Pat Booth died and I wrote an obituary of him and I realised that there was a lot more that I hadn't read and needed to read more and the more I read the more I got interested and literally woke up in the middle of the night one night thinking that stuff about the axle doesn't make sense I really have to understand that (laughs) and um so, which is often the way investigative projects start, um, is curiosity. You just can't make sense of something um, rather than having a particular theory. So burrowed and burrowed and burrowed and read more and more and more and then got in touch with Kirsty and I sort of realised that, you know, that I really needed some help with this and um, it needed another person. Um, and Kirsty came to mind as a really good journalist, um, someone who's from the area as well, and someone whose writing and just general approach I've always admired. So she agreed to become involved, and it took off from there. Kirsty, when James got in touch, did you think, oh, my Lord, you know, there's been a million movies and books and documentaries about this case. What more is there to say? That is exactly what I thought. And I (laughs) said to James, we're not doing a book. We're not doing a podcast. Like, I don't think it needs another retelling. Um, But then as we went on, I read all the books um, and I watched the movie and what we discovered was that there wasn't a kind of full narrative of the case in an objective way. Everyone who'd come to it had come with a theory and it made sifting through the information really difficult because everything had this kind of bias in it and so people were kind of marshalling the facts around their particular viewpoint and so it was really hard for us picking through all of that. And that's where the idea came from. The interesting thing is, I mean, I find this book fascinating because, I mean, I grew up with the crew murders in my time in New Zealand, right? Um, 1970. And 
I thought I knew. You know, everybody, Arthur and Thomas and the cartridge and the gun and the... You think you know. But what you did with this book is you opened it right up, you talked to the surviving people who could tell you things that were actually discounted by the police at the time. Um, and, of course, at the root of it is police corruption as identified by the 1980 Royal Commission, plus systemic corruption, that it was never, ever examined that the police had done wrong. Well, was there systemic corruption? Well, certainly the Royal Commission of Inquiry found police corruption in the sense that police planted the evidence, of course, which, to be fair, those police officers still deny. And what makes the case interesting, I think, and lifts it beyond all the other cold cases and why I think we really need to think about it and understand it properly is because it has this whole other level to it because it is still the only free pardon granted to a living prisoner, a convicted murderer in particular, anyway. Um, and why did that happen? Well, it happened because this whole thing, whole case was went through the adversarial court process. The court process could not admit that they essentially got it wrong. And we then went through a parallel court process, which was the inquisitorial process under the Royal Commission of Inquiry, which on the same evidence found a completely different set of results. So two parallel processes, different results. Ultimately, a politician, Jim McClay, had to decide that essentially that the court process, the adversarial court process, which we have in New Zealand, got it wrong. And his finding, I think, has been justified by the subsequent police review in 2014 and, of course, by the Royal Commission. And so ultimately the problem was when you say systemic corruption, well, yeah, the, the courts and the Justice Department could not admit that the process was flawed. Their process of testing the evidence was simply flawed and, and didn't work. And that's the real, I think, big lesson for this, from for me, from this case, is that essentially justice sometimes in these cases is, I guess, too important to be left to the experts in the sense it's ultimately a political decision or a, a community decision. I want to talk to you about the axle because mm. that's pretty interesting, but... I also want to ask you why you found it necessary or saw it necessary to go into the Maori and European history, the contested history of Pukekawa and Kingitanga and Tathiao. When James came to me, he obviously, because he's a professor of journalism, he said, you know, there's multiple ways we could look at investigating this. And it's been done through, you know, the kind of traditional lens of crime and all that kind of thing. And we really wanted to try and think laterally and have a different look at what other aspects may be involved. And one of those was geography. You know, is there something here in the land that could tell us something new? Because, you know, it is 53 years old. And so we were just trying to think very broadly about what was new and that's when we started down the path of looking at the land. There was also the fact um, Jeanette Crow, she felt like there was something in the land. She felt there was a curse on their farm. Yeah, well, as Kirsty said, I mean, it's often been looked at, you know, as a as a crime story, you know. What did the police get wrong and what were the police faults and all that procedure? And people have been really bogged down in that, I think. And so we thought, well, yeah, as Kirsty said, well, let's think differently and um, so when you sort of looked at the land and we really looked into the land and the history of the land particularly the history of that farm itself all these strange things popped up which 
we hadn't really thought of. For example, that that particular piece of land, that farm itself, was reserved by the Crown for educational purposes. In other words, it was put there to generate income to run a local school. And it was never sold until the 1950s. And we were able to show that Len Demler, who was Jeanette's father, bought that land off the Crown for one-fifth of its value. That's never been said before or acknowledged or come out before. So that land was Crown land, and it was reserved as Crown land for a reason. We don't quite know what the reason was. But it's possible that there was something special about that land. For example, in one of the earlier maps, there's a little part of that land marked as a cemetery. What kind of cemetery we were not able to find out, whether it was for a, a district, you know, sort of municipal cemetery, or whether it actually refers to an original Māori Urupa, or cemetery, we're not quite sure. But there was something unusual about that piece of land, and there's been an unusual series of events with that land, um, not just the crews dying on it, but Jeanette's uncle died in a tractor accident on that land as well, so it has got an unfortunate history. You're suggesting that it was cursed in some way? Who knows? Um, there's more to know about that, I think. Jeanette believed that they were being watched and there were a few incidents. There was a burglary and there was a fire. Um, The implication is that the killer was already harassing them. Is that your understanding? So the burglary, that kind of, that really did centre on Jeanette. It was her jewellery that was stolen in that, which I think would have been unnerving for her, you know, and she's she's this woman who she's grown up in this community in Pukekawa. She's gone away to boarding school. She's gone away and become a teacher. She's made new friends. She's come back, and she's living in this place next door to her parents, you know, in this kind of isolated area where she doesn't really feel she's got a connection anymore, and then somebody breaks into her house. They steal things that are very precious to her. Not long afterwards, there's a fire in her baby's room, um, and then there's another fire soon afterwards in a hay barn on the property. So, yeah, she really started to feel like something bad was happening, and she said that to her friends. And I found that really fascinating because she was only 30, which is younger than I am now, and I was thinking, how would that feel for her living there and, and feeling like... They, she was under scrutiny. But when they died, I mean, like, the burglary was sort of investigated by police. They came and took fingerprints, but nothing came of it. The fires both didn't really reach the attention of investigators. Um, and when they died, the same thing happened. The police thought they weren't connected. And even though you can see in the records that some of the detectives tried to say, well, maybe they, maybe they are connected, in the initial investigation, nobody thought that was relevant. And so I think what the impact of that was that there was probably a lot of information there that was lost because if you don't do it at the time, you can't retrospectively go back, really, and try and connect them. In 2014, the police did a review of the case and they actually did. I think one of the detectives spent too much of her time in the basement of the Auckland police station trying to look through these records to see if there were burglars operating at the time and similarly with the fire records, but they could never really piece it back together. So, yeah, I I felt like possibly the killer had been watching them and the police profiler felt that as well. But it's just impossible to know because all that information was lost because of that kind of 
tunnel vision at the time. A tunnel vision that first of all focused on Landemla, Jeanette's father, and then swivelled to Arthur Owen Thomas and didn't admit any other possibilities, it seems. Um, tell me about the axle, James, please, because you spend a lot of time researching this and the axle still exists, right? Yes, it's down there in Wellington, just not far from where I am right now, actually. It's in the bottom of the National Archives building, about three floors down in this sort of climate-controlled environment, sitting there on a wooden pallet inside a metal cage, along with a whole lot of other exhibits or evidence from various other things. Um, So we went down there and we had a look at it. Um, We're not the first person people to have done that, of course. But it still exists and it's still there. And it's a slightly unnerving feeling when you pick up this thing which was connected to Harvey's body and obviously still handled by the person who killed them. Literally connected to Harvey's body. I mean, this was attached to Harvey's body to keep him down under the river. Well, we know that it was found adjacent to Harvey's body. Uh, We only have Bruce Hutton's word for it that it was attached to the body. I see. Um, So there has been doubt raised about that. But I think... You'd have to argue it has been was attached to the body. It's almost certain it was for various reasons. So if you accept that, which I think almost everyone does except one or two people, then this was the axle that was used to weigh down Harvey's body, attached by two pieces of wire. And so it's hugely significant. It was hugely significant in the trials because it was shown to have come... In the trials, it was shown to have come from the Thomas trailer on the Thomas farm. Therefore, another crucial piece of hard evidence tying Harvey's body to the Thomas farm. Now, I guess what we did, and what the Thomas family have always said, was that that wasn't an axle from their trailer. And that's been hugely contested over the years. But we really had a really close look at that because it is one of the most interesting pieces of evidence. The Royal Commission of Inquiry looked into it in depth and disagreed, said that we don't believe that, we, we're actually unable to be sure whether it did come from the Thomas trailer or not. Um, we sort of looked into it in a great deal of depth. There's an old saying in investigative journalism, there's always a document somewhere, and when we were looking into it, we spent a lot of time in the, in the National Archives looking through all the, the evidence on the case, and we came across this pamphlet, which was a Nash parts pamphlet. This axle comes from an old Nash motor car, and in one of the boxes there was this pamphlet which was um, a Nash parts manual and on this axle is a is a part number or motor car parts have a part number on them usually and the parts pamphlet had a little pencil dot marked on it next to the part number that matched the axle part number and to cut a long story short essentially I think we came to the conclusion that this axle did not come from the Thomas trailer because it wasn't the right year of motor car and various other reasons as well. Mm. And so consequently, that's one of the foundations of the case used to convict Arthur Allen Thomas kicked away. Yes, uh, well, absolutely. That There's three solid pieces of evidence left, or there were, I should say. One is the rifle. The bullets supposedly matched his rifle. Second is the axle, which supposedly came from the Thomas farm. And the third is the wire used to wrap the bodies. Mm. One of the um, one of the most interesting aspects is the time you spent 
talking to Ross Eyre, who was 16 at the time Harvey and Jeanette Crewe were killed. He's never spoken publicly about what he saw until he spoke to you, correct? No, he hadn't. And we kind of went up there on a whim. We were in Pukakawa and some of our other interviews had fallen over and we were thinking, who could we go and see? And so we just rang Ross. Fall- and- just one moment. Yes. Fallen over because people changed their minds. Yeah. I mean, how hard was it to get people to talk? It was really difficult. And, you know, that's what I do for a job day in, day out, getting people to talk. But I think, for one, you know, people had already been asked the same questions time and time again. There was this idea that we should let bygones be bygones. Particularly as it had torn the community apart. Yes. For years. It really had, you know, it had ruined relationships, families. And so, yeah, there was a strong element of that. But then there were some people who really, when we explained to them what we were doing, we want to give a history of this case that is, you know, factual and unbiased. People like Ross, he was one of them, did decide to speak to us. So we went up there and we met with Ross and his wife Trish and he gave us his account of what had happened to him, um, which was effectively that when he was 16, uh, he saw a woman driving a car a couple of days after the um, crews were killed and he told this to the police nobody the had known that they were dead at the time nobody had known they were missing for these kind of these four or five days when nobody was in the house and except for Rochelle obviously the baby um, yeah and Ross had told the police this at the time and the officer just wrote him off as a kind of schoolboy who was looking for attention and so he kind of carried that with him his whole life um, and then of course their family, the heir family, the, the brother, Johnny, he ended up being accused by the Thomases. Um, well, Kevin Ryan, mm, I think the lawyer named him in court as yes. the person who killed the crews. Yes, he was named in one of the trials as kind of an alternate suspect. And yeah, and so this the heir family had lived for years with people saying that they were the true culprits and their gun matched and the gun had been sent off and it had been proven that it wasn't the gun, but nevertheless, you know, suspicion lingers. And so, yeah, we, we spoke to Ross and he kind of unburdened himself, I think. I think he feels good about the fact that people know that side of the story now. I'm talking to... James Hollings and Kirsty Johnston about their book The Crew Murders Inside New Zealand's Most Infamous Cold Case. Did you think at any point, James, that you were actually going to solve this? (laughs) Well, I suppose you have to be driven by some hope that that just might happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, I was certainly, I guess, vain enough to think that for a while. (laughs) And, um, and it's the one thing that keeps you going, I suppose, and it's, I guess, one of the initial things that draws you into stories like this, isn't it, that um, who done it? Um, but I guess, you know, after quite a while and realising that, you know, you're sort of prone to the same sort of confirmation bias that everyone is, and you're basically talking yourself into, into, a, into a story, and then you realise one of the nice things about working with Kirsty is we were able to sort of pull each other out of those rabbit holes, you know, and say, well, actually, this, have you thought about that? And no, but what about that? And so after having done that a couple of times with various suspects, um, well, certainly I got to the point that I'm thinking, well, no, I'm not going to 
make up a story anymore to myself or to anyone. Um, and that's, you know, disappointing because you'd like to have found out who'd done it for, for everyone's sake. But um, Do you think that mm-hmm. there's still somebody alive who knows? I think so. For one, the scene, it really does seem to indicate that there was more than one person present. Um, and we, we went round and round on that and decided that it does look like somebody helped Somebody's cleaned, cleaned up. up. Somebody yep. else cleaned up and, poss- and, and yeah, likely for the baby, it seems. Possibly. And so I think... I mean, that's always the thing, isn't it? That's, it's like, did the dingo take the baby? Who fed Rochelle? Who fed Rochelle? Yeah. And so the best kind of interpretation of the scene that, that we came to, or that I seem to feel, uh, was that the person had gone there, done this thing, They'd done the thing, and perhaps what had happened was that they'd left, told someone, and then they had been like, we better go and clean it up. Or, and or and they'd felt, there's a baby there, you can't leave the baby there, and that had driven someone to go back. So I think if you're talking maybe one, two, or even three people, the likelihood that all of them are dead now and that none of them told anyone seems very low. One of the weird things always struck me was that Jeanette's father, Len Demler, eventually, after five days, he went round. He saw that something was wrong. He left the baby in the cot and went off to, I don't know, send some animals off to the works or something? Yes, so everyone thought that behaviour was suspicious. So he came into the house, he saw Rochelle in her cot there, and then he saw all the blood. He left, he went, yeah, to sort out, there were trucks coming for the stock, for some of Harvey's sheep that had eczema, I think. So he went and he told, he rang and he said, don't come. And then he went and got the neighbour and came back, and then later he took Rochelle round to a friend's house. I mean, people behave strongly under stress, right? They do. Strangely (laughs) under stress. And, you know, and there are lots of other suspicions about Lynn Demler. You know, he didn't help look for the bodies. There are kind of three camps, it seems to me, if you want to simplify it ridiculously. The people who think that somebody else did it, not Arthur Allen Thomas. The people who think that Arthur Allen Thomas did it. Or Len Demler is the third camp. Well, Len Demler or somebody else. But yes, the police planted evidence, but Arthur Allen Thomas did it anyway. Ah, yes, that's a camp. And is that still a possibility in your minds? I think there's a remote possibility that Arthur did it. I mean, a technical possibility, if you like. Um, I mean, if you talk to the police, I think you'd say still that the evidence points to the Thomas farm. Um, and it was interesting talking to Bruce Parks, we, one of the people we interviewed, who was one of the police officers who worked on the investigation, and one of the ones who was actually singled out by the Royal Commission of Inquiry as being an honest broker. And he struck us that way too, as a decent, straightforward police officer who's had a career that. He said, well... I was with Arthur Allen Thomas after he was arrested and I was asked to take him to a psychiatric assessment and the psychiatrist turned around to me afterwards and said, are you sure you haven't got the wrong man? And he said at the time he felt that he didn't think Arthur was guilty, but 
all the evidence from the rest of the police investigation pointed that way. So you get a sense of how kind of groupthink kind of works. Well, that some individual police officers may have had doubts about Arthur, but the evidence seemed to be pointing that way. The rest of the team were finding stuff, and so who might doubt it? And you can see how these kind of builds up. So, and I think the 2014 police review again came to the same conclusion that, well, yes, he had a very strong alibi. Vivian Thomas, his wife, said, even though she'd long divorced him, said to her death that I was with him and I know he didn't do it. Many people who knew him over a very long time said it couldn't have been Arthur. Rossier himself also says, that I don't believe, we never believed Arthur did it. So there's an awful lot of people who think he wasn't capable of it even if the technical evidence sort of seemed to point to his farm. So... I don't know whether you want to be asked about other theories, but, I mean, Pat Booth believed that Harvey had hit Jeanette, she shot and killed him, and then killed herself. Well, that's patently ridiculous in my view. I mean, in the police review, came to the same conclusion, Jeanette had been hit with a very blunt instrument which broke her nose, I think, smashed out some of her teeth. Did she do that to herself? Maybe Arthur did that. Maybe the theory was that Harvey might have done that to her and then she shot him. Yeah. But from what I read, and that she wouldn't have been in any condition to do anything after that, blows like that. Um, and then, of course, she was shot in the from very close range in the side of the head. She do that she do that to herself with a rifle? It seems hard to believe. <laughs> That's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to work on the book was the characterization or the mischaracterization of Jeanette and, and Harvey. But the way they're p- portrayed, not only by the police originally, like in the police statements there's a lot of this kind of supposition, like just these accusations about Jeanette that, oh, she was a poor housekeeper, you know, because they walked into the house and they found dust and they found that her clothing from the day before was, you know, not put away. And there were nappies and things. So they had all these, casting these aspersions on this woman who was just living her life with a toddler on a farm. Her mother had died not long beforehand, you know. And the same with Harvey. They cast him as this kind of aggressive, angry man. And a lot of it seemed to be based on very little, like on kind of general scuttlebutt or just not on fact. And so those theories that people had, I think, kind of, you know, thoughtlessly put forward. I don't think it's the job of a journalist. You can investigate, and both particularly did excellent investigative work. But I think people strayed from their lanes in putting these theories forward. It's it's damaging. It's really damaging. And they weren't based on fact. I don't but also think. inevitable. You know, it was a vacuum. Yeah. And people rushed in with essentially gossip. Yes. I mean, it was essentially gossip. It was gossip, but is it the job of a journalist to publish gossip? I don't <laughs> think so. Very good question. <laughs> I you don't know. believe so. No, but what sells newspapers actually back in that day was another theory about Arthur Allen Thomas. The public appetite for this case was enormous. And I'm wondering if you can explain it. Was it the Times? Did it have particular resonance because there was a child involved? I think, well, undoubtedly the fact that Rochelle was left in the house for five days alone made everyone sit up and think, oh my God, this is terrible. I mean, it was also 
Um, it came at a time when there'd been a couple of other unsolved murders, the Jennifer Baird case beforehand, Olive Walker. There was a sense of unease at the time about what was going on. And this seemed to just amplify all that because it was a particularly unpleasant, awful scene. Um, Bruce Hutton himself said it was one of the worst I've ever seen. Um, two bodies missing. is clearly an assassination. It was premeditated and it was um, vicious in the sense that Jeanette was struck and beaten before she was before she was shot. So it was, it was nasty and it was vicious and the baby was left in the house five days. So all those sort of things led to, I think, a sense of public revulsion about what had happened and a real determination from the Pukekoa community to help find out what had happened to Harvey and Jeanette. And that became a nationwide um, concern as well. And then, of course, once Arthur was convicted um, and doubts started to be raised about the, the conviction, it took on another whole uh, level as well. Um, we were talking about somebody cleaning up, coming in to clean up afterwards. What did they clean up, given that there was still such a mess there, when it was eventually discovered? So they tried to clean up the blood. There was blood in the kitchen, and then there was blood kind of streaks or stains in the carpet and the lounge as well. So they'd got uh, pots, you know, cooking pots. There were two, and they'd tried. It seemed to use one to clean up Harvey's blood and then one to clean up Jeanette's blood. So they but had in the end, they it. just sort of gave up. It didn't work. And then they'd kind of like spattered that, you know, this bloodied water across the kitchen as well. And then there was also a match by the hearth, like a, a, a carpet square effectively in front of the fire. Mm. And that had been burned and so had a cushion, which the police assumed they were burned because they had blood on them. Um, and those had been burned. And the police, like, you know, they did do some dreadful things but they also did some really good work and the work they did in like recreating the scene of the the killer burning this cushion and everything they worked out how hot the fire would have been how long it would have taken you know they did know all that kind of thing mm. um but they it never came to anything you know i can't get over how inept that cleaning up was no it seems like a rush job it really does but but not even a job. I mean, still plenty of potential evidence left behind. It's not like anything was achieved by that effort. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you really, and I think the police um, came to the same conclusion, that clearly the killers felt they had to get rid of the bodies, <clears throat> presumably because they knew the, bo the bodies had bullets in them, which could be traced back to a rifle. So they went to a lot of effort to get rid of the bodies. <clears throat> and on the other hand, they made some sort of an attempt at cleaning up the, the blood in the house and realised it was a, a lost cause and, and gave up. But then kept coming back to the, apparently coming back to the farm to, for whatever reason, to possibly feed um, Rochelle. So you really... And you're convinced that Rochelle was fed. She couldn't have survived in the condition she was found in for five days if somebody had not tended to her. James and I diverged on this for a really long time. I was quite convinced after reading the evidence from the doctors. She was a chunky 18-month-old. I thought, you know, she could probably have survived. It wasn't hot, for example. She wouldn't have got dehydrated. Um, she was in good condition. I thought four days wasn't that long, and that's kind of what some of the doctors said. They thought, oh, they thought she kind of survived... 72 
hours. And also the condition she was found in was so bad that it seemed like she hadn't been fed. You know, she was so thirsty. The lady who took her in fed her and then she was sick. You know, she was clinging, she was shaking, she was in this bad state. And so I thought, she hasn't been fed. That's why she's in such this traumatised manner. And then over time reading the kind of rest of the evidence, which is these very strong sightings of people at the house, and then reading the later evidence of experts who know more about child nutrition and things like that, it seems like she must have been fed, that mm. she probably couldn't have survived. Mm. So we've eventually landed at the same place on that. Right. <laughs> it's interesting. One other thing is that um, one thing's never been really said before is that possibly she could have climbed out of the cot herself. I mean, there's if you look as a... And climb back in again. Yeah, the cot was next to a bed. Um, and so it's, you know, if you look on the internet, there's lots of videos of 18-month-old toddlers climbing out of cots and back in again. So it's that's not impossible either. <clears throat> Maybe should... James and I are diverging. Again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, I see another chapter coming up yeah, in the next edition. It, it's one of the most extraordinary things about this story, isn't it? That it is. Poor Rochelle... You know, and she was there's some terribly poignant moments that come through of after she was taken away and looked after um, that she couldn't stand the sound of phones ringing because presumably in those five days the phone had been ringing again and again and again mm. in the crew house and it must have left a, an imprint on her and it's it's you know your hearts go out what a life she's had to live with that appearance for so long and um I guess one of the things for us in doing this book was to try and dispel some of the malicious gossip about her parents and and her grandfather that has, that has, that has come out, I think, in a, as fair a way as we could. There's that really heartbreaking moment where Len Demler describes taking Rochelle to the na- to the neighbour's house and he picks her up and she clings to him and he tries to put her in the front seat of the car and she won't let him go and they have to kind of peel her off and put her there with her little blanket and they get there and he's crying, you know. He's very upset and this is the man they say did it and I remember reading that and thinking it just doesn't seem to to match. I mean, human, I know human behaviour is strange, strange but I just, it just didn't fit with what had been said about him by some people for me. Um, Finally, at the very end of the book, you say that you began it with one of the lingering questions that many have posed over the years. Who really freed Thomas? Muldoon, people say, you know, was a kind of an anti-establishment whim that he decided to champion Arthur Allen Thomas. What do you think? Who freed Arthur Allen Thomas? Well, I guess one of the things we have actually managed to add to, add to the whole long saga of the story and that has never been told before is the Jim McClay's story. So Jim McClay was Minister of Justice in uh, Muldoon's cabinet in 1979 and we interviewed him and um, he decided to tell a story for the first time of, of why he decided to pardon Arthur Allen Thomas. And... It's a great story, I think, and we've really added something there because it's a compelling story of, of and I think it's one that does him and I think Muldoon and the other members of that cabinet a lot of credit. Um, they don't get, don't get a lot of um, good publicity over the years. This was the cabinet that brought us a Springbok tour, for us, of course. Um, but they, I think they did a great thing there and actually in looking at the evidence really plainly and deciding that, no, this was not something that could go on. Um, 
And so it was Jim McClay who freed Arthur Allen Thomas, and he did it for, I think, the best of reasons. You think that he would have done it had there not been so much journalistic attention on the case? I think... I mean, it's a cause celebre, so... Maybe he was forced to do it rather than some kind of principled action. Well, is that a bad thing? I mean, I think he would say himself that, that Muldoon was aware that this was a political issue. Um, and yet it was only a year, a year after the election that they'd had 78, 79 is when he did it. They'd had the election in 78. So there wasn't immediate political pressure. It wasn't coming up to an election. Um, and yet Muldoon was aware that this thing had been going on for a long time. Um, and... Maclay was aware too, but Maclay is adamant that he was going to make the final decision and that he told Muldoon and the rest of that, I'm making this decision and I will decide and that will make my recommendation. And according to him, that is what happened. He made his recommendation and it was accepted by Muldoon and the other members of the cabinet. Um, it was a brave decision, quite a bold decision. And if you read the book, you'll see how much pressure he was under by Justice Department officials not to make that decision and he overruled them. And just why he did it in the reasoning, I think, is absolutely fascinating for anyone who wants to study the difference between, you know, the sort of nexus between politics and and the law and the judiciary. Um, but yes, and ultimately, it was a political decision for the best of reasons. And I think the media pressure played a part in that, in the sense that, but that was a good thing. I think that it wasn't a decision made on a political whim. It was a decision made for sound, um, logical. Um, practical, judicial reasons, um, which I think has stood the test of time, as has been confirmed by the 2014 Police Review. And you've said, Kirsty, that one of the things you found most interesting was the characterisation of Jeanette and you wanting to, in some way, fill her out as a human being. Maybe you had Rochelle in mind when you were doing that. I did. Um, I just felt when James approached me about doing this project, I was in the middle of writing a lot of stories about uh, miscarriage of justice and the way women were treated in the justice system. And it was so shocking to me that, you know, Jeanette was another one of these women who were just painted in a certain light and it carries on for years and years and years. And I really felt like she kind of deserved a say as a person, you know. It's really easy, I think to paint people as caricatures and journalism does do it all the time but I don't know something about her story really struck me um there's this amazing quote from David Longy actually if you're talking about um you know who freed Arthur Thomas I think part of it was was the the everyday people you know these are all just everyday people that he calls them in an invariably grey trousers with their chapped hands you know and they're, they're not people protest protesting the Vietnam War they're people with shares in dairy companies and I think it was these kind of the, the everydayness of them these people they were just living their lives and then a horrible thing happened and it's kind of reverberated around for so long and I really do hope that the book um kind of just brings a bit more humanity to them. And that was Kirsty Johnston, who with James Hollings has written The Crew Murders Inside New Zealand's most infamous cold case.